Alright, and welcome everybody to part two of this amazing special Talking Space episode. This is Talking Space episode 1008, and part two of our amazing Parker Solar Probe launch special episodes. I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me once again is Mr. Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. I can't wait to go ahead and share some of these interviews that we had with some of these fantastic individuals that uh, are helping uh, us understand uh understand our nearest star. Exactly. In case you missed it, the Parker Solar Probe successfully launching earlier in August, launching back on August 12th, 2018 at 3.31 a.m. Eastern Time from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida, just outside the Kennedy Space Center. That mission now successfully on its way to the sun, and Gene and myself were there. And if you missed part one, please go back and check out episode 1007. You'll get to hear that amazing launch audio a little bit about our thoughts and reactions during the launch. And uh, most importantly, you'll get to hear some of those scientists speaking, including Dr. Jim Green, who's the head of science at NASA. And his was amazing. And as amazing as his was, we have so many more to get to. So, uh, Gene, let's start talking about some of these instruments. We've talked broadly. Let, let's get a little more in-depth. What do you think? I have a better idea. I know a lot of people understand how the... Uh, understand that this thing launched, but they don't under really, really grasp why we're doing this to begin with. And we talked with uh, the, I believe, the pro program scientist, a gentleman by the name of Adam Zabo, that basically filled us in as to what the Parker Solar Probe is really, really trying to accomplish as its, as its primary mission. And why, uh, why we're doing this to begin with? Why are we going off to the sun? Why are we spending all this money and, and trying to understand how the sun works and why it's important to us? So uh, why don't we go ahead and, and uh, get Adam Zabo's answer to the question of those mission objectives, what they are all about. So the Parker Solar Probe has sort of three very general science objectives. Uh, one of them is the, to figure out why is the solar corona so intensely hot, much, much hotter than the visible surface of the sun, the photosphere. The other one is why is the solar wind so incredibly fast? It takes off at a, a leisurely uh, speed from the photosphere, but something magical happens in the corona that uh, rockets out, so to speak, the, the charged particles, and they become the supersonic solar wind that the Earth is embedded in. And the third question is that why energetic particles, solar energetic particles, these are the 10 to 100 MeV particles that astronauts worry about when they will be on the way to Mars or outside of Earth's magnetosphere. These are the particles that cause electronics problems for satellites, single event upsets, matchups, and, and the likes. Uh, why, how, do, how are these energetic particles accelerated? It happens, we know they are associated with flares and corona mass ejection-driven shocks, uh, but the details of it is sort of vague, and it's a tough, tough thing to, uh, to accelerate a particle that starts its life uh, near the sun at a fairly low energy, and then it, all of a sudden a few of these particles are picked up, and they gain six to eight orders of magnitude increase in energy. Tremendous but only a few of them. So how does this happen? Uh, why does this happen? And the, of course the ultimate goal is to predict, to quantitatively be able to forecast uh, these events as they encounter the Earth's environment, which we call space weather forecasting. So that's basically everything in a nutshell. We're trying to really, really to understand how the sun works really to our benefit. 
uh, to try to, to understand more about, about the, the solar corona and, and the atmosphere that, that the sun creates around us. Not only because, like it or not, the Earth lives within the sun's atmosphere and its effects can be felt not only, you know, <laughs> not only around here and around, around the Earth, but also further out, almost out toward the edge of the solar system. So it's a, probably a pretty good idea to understand how how this star could have go ahead and affect uh, our, our lives here and understand more about the solar wind and how it, it functions and so on. So I thought, again, that that was probably a pretty good primer uh, to understanding why we're doing this to begin with and why the Parker Solar Probe is really, really a, a special mission. Exactly. There was a press conference the day before. We went out to the rocket and two days before launch. And they were talking about the importance of it, that this, you know, reaches all the way out to the edge of the solar system and the fastest spacecraft by the way we've ever launched are now outside of the solar system with voyager one and voyager two one of them is outside the heliosphere so the influence of the sun one of them is still in it and that launched 40 years ago now almost 50 yeah and it's still getting impacts from the sun and here we are you know 93 million miles from it we have tons of spacecraft out there, and we asked them about that, you know, the role of some of these other things like SDO and these other spacecraft that are just studying the sun, but they can't give us the answers like Parker can. So let's hear a little bit from him about because we talked about, you know, all these distant spacecraft and things like that, and yet the ones we have studying it. Let's hear from him about the role that Parker Solar Probe will have in all of this. Uh, obviously, every mission uh, when you design and uh, sell it, uh, it, it has to have uh, things that can stand on its own. So we have to have questions and answers that uh, questions we can answer just by ourselves. But that's by no means implies that uh, solar probe is working somehow in isolation. In fact, the most exciting question is that what is the the structure and dynamics of the whole heliosphere? And so Probis just happens to be the closest buoy we have to the Sun. We have a collaboration with the Europeans called the Solar Orbiter mission that uh, will sort of do the halfway uh, type of measurements. It also will do higher latitude and more. from that distance they can actually take pictures. Uh, they are far enough that it became possible to actually do images. And then, of course, we have nearest assets like Wind, Ace, IMAP is going up uh, in 2024, and then Stereo is the one, Stereo A is still alive, and we are hoping that for, for a long while. So we have a whole bunch of 1AU uh, points. And then moving up, the Jovian missions, uh, so Jupiter, like Juno. Uh, uh, measurements, but then we are also following out all the way to the edge of the heliosphere voyagers, Voyager 1 and 2. Voyager 1 is already outside uh, the heliopause, measuring interstellar space. Voyager 2 is still inside the helioshift, the uh, uh, just in last region that is still solar dominated. So again, that whatever Voyager sees out there at 150 AUs away, Pluto is at 35. It's, it's really, really far away. It's still controlled. From there, looking back, the sun is not even the brightest spot. It's still controlled by the sun. So whatever probe is measuring determines that when it, uh, Voyager 2 uh, will cut across the heliopause, the, the finer boundary to get into interstellar space. Yes, so it, it's all one system science, which is much harder than the individual questions now because things evolve uh, 
you know, interstellar particles become part of the picture, uh, shocks merge into the uh, merge interaction regions, uh, planetary interaction. So it gets much more complicated once you look at the bigger picture. Yeah, so again, Sawyer, you can, you can see how this particular mission is going to fit in to the understanding of not only how the sun works, but also why we should really, really pay attention to this. And, and we talked with one of the other, other program scientists here, too, uh, about that very, very same thing. And we'll, we'll get to that uh, a little later. But I think, I think uh, Dr. Zabel really, really gave some, some insights into, into why we're doing this and, and to, uh, to understanding you know, the importance of, uh, of all of this. The, the flight is to go ahead and understand how solar eruptions accelerate particles uh, to such a degree that they can pose a hazard, uh, not only to the Earth, but also to orbiting platforms such as the International Space Station and perhaps even if astronauts are on, a, on an EVA outside or even inside the spacecraft, how, how they, would, they would go ahead and, and need to respond to that. Could also be a factor too, if we're gonna go out further into, uh, into space as well. I mean, we're talking about, you know, again, resuming deep, human deep space missions. And so having a, a good understanding of, uh, of the heliosphere here is, is probably a pretty good thing to, to, to have, especially if you're, we're, we're venturing further outward. There's a lot that we still don't know and that we're going to need to know about the sun as we move outward, and this will finally do it. And as we've talked about, this is a mission that has been 60 years in the making. A lot of the technology that we needed to do this mission just wasn't around when it was first proposed 60 years ago. Now we finally have simplified techniques. We have a thinner heat shield that still can withstand the heat. We have these amazing new instruments that can help keep it oriented towards the sun with that heat shield, things like that. And it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the other thing too is that the sun and how it how its impacts on Earth could have really, really long effects. Like, for instance, the story that uh, that Dr. Green gave in the previous episode, um, that one event back in 1859, where an aurora was created that you could, you know, almost read by, you know, in the entire uh, uh, northern hemisphere here. It definitely was near, if not past the equator. Yeah, I mean, it was it was within in the sphere of South America. Back then, you know, we were not a technological society. Uh, I guess you know we were still using you know lamps and things like that to read by and so on. We did not have the internet. We did not have computers. We did not have, uh, you know, general positioning satellites or GPS. We didn't have any of this this stuff. Today we do, and a lot of what we do is dependent on those on those technologies. And uh, the sun can go ahead and literally, literally ruin your day, as far as those those technologies are concerned, if we're not too careful. And uh, as as Dr. Green said on the last episode, it could throw us back, uh, literally back to 1859. I mean, you could live that way, but do you really want to? Especially, you know, I, you know, as as he said, you know, as Sawyer, you said too during during that interview. I think you you pointed out that you know people that that if they, you know, go two hours without the internet, they go through you know you know they go through the DTS. So you know, do you really really? 
want to go ahead and and try to put all of that at risk? I think not, and that's 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 one of the other things that Parker Silver Probe is going to help us understand, but a little better. Exactly. So this mission is very unique in many ways. We talked about a lot of the technology not being around, but one thing that is unique that has been around for a while is the gravity assist. Now, there's a, been a bunch of missions that have used Venus and other planets to swing by and speed themselves up. Jupiter has been a especially big one because of its large gravity well to just be able to use it and kind of fling it off like you're taking it and you're giving it an extra little boost. This is doing the exact opposite, which is very rare and yet still freaking awesome, where it is going to be using Venus to swing by it and slow itself down. And as we mentioned last episode, it will be three passes of Venus over the course of seven years uh, going back and forth to try and get information about it. And one thing I remember that he talked about when we were interviewing him was just what a science opportunity this gives them because of how many passes they're getting. Yeah, exactly. And it also kind of helps get the instruments fine-tuned as well for uh, for their eventual uh, uh, arrival at the sun. So, um, And Sawyer, too, if I recall, even Earth has been used, I believe, twice for uh for gravity assist and usually it's it's to just kind of bleed off a little bit and get more momentum out of the spacecraft and so on this here is doing the exact opposite as you pointed out this is actually slowing the spacecraft down so instead of you know stealing some of the uh the rotation away do you kind of leave behind you know some some energy is kind of removed and as such the you know the earth is spinning just slightly slower not by much you know just a little bit um, but in this case, we're actually giving back. <laughs> we're actually giving back momentum, so Venus is probably going to spend just you know, slightly faster as a result, I wonder. So why don't we go ahead and, and let Dr. Zabo go ahead and explain uh, why this maneuver is required. Often I am uh, asked this question that, well, we probably had a really easy time going to the sun because you just get up the Earth and you just fall right in. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not the case, because if it were, then the Earth would follow right behind. Uh, so uh, we are starting from Earth, and Earth is already going around at a pretty good clip around the Sun. That's why we are not falling in. In fact, it's uh, going at 30 kilometers per second, which is faster than the biggest rockets can produce uh, in terms of speed. So as we take off, our starting point is that we are going around the Sun at 30 kilometers per second in a nearly circular orbit. So with this big rocket out there in the launch pad, uh, not far from us here, uh, that rocket will take off and it will start breaking like mad. So it will be fired in the opposite direction of the Earth's uh, motion and we are just breaking. Uh, and that allows us to actually start falling in. Even with all the breaking that this behemoth rocket, the Delta IV Heavy can give us, we can fall to Venus which is at 0.76 AUs, we are at 1, we are aiming to go uh, below 0.1. Uh, so uh, we can get to Venus. And then we use this inverse gravity assist. Normally gravity assist are used to slingshot things faster out like the Voyagers and the Pioneers at, uh, at Jupiter to increase our speed. Here, as you correctly said, that it, it will be using every time to break a little bit. Now, uh, the reason we are not doing it all at once because the, we would have to go through under the ground, we had to tunnel if we want to do it in a single gravity assist uh, to actually slow down enough. So uh, 
it requires multiple encounters, but it's not a, uh, not a problem. In fact, that's an advantage. One of them is that we are going into terra incognita. We, we really don't know what we are expecting. Uh, we don't know what is the dust environment. Do, do we have the temperature computer, computations right? So rather than going for broke right away and say, well, let's hope for the best, we send it in and nothing comes out on the other side. Oops, somebody made a mistake. Uh, let's do it uh, stepwise. And the first couple orbits, we are 100% that we, we know how to do it. It will be already closer than another spacecraft, but it's not that terribly uh, hard. So uh, that we will measure, so, okay, check the models, are the measurements following the predictions? Okay, now let's do the next step. And we actually can stop. We don't have to do the Venus gravity assist if we find that, okay, guys, we are reaching the point, if we do the next one, bad things will happen. We can actually stop it. So that's one advantage. The other one is that uh, what we are, it's really not that are you there, that magical point. We want to study in and out the radio profile that as we are getting in so, and then marching back out, I want to have a set of measurements as a function of radio distance from the sun. So what I really want is not just to sit at one point, but the journey there and the journey back. So the fact that we have seven gravity assists, each of them is associated with two or three orbits of itself, that's great because that means that many orbit times two, one in, one out, that's how many uh, timelines I will have. So again, this is rather kind of an intriguing thing because we've never, I, I don't, Sawyer, I don't think in, in recent memory uh, we've ever used a gravity assist like this before for any of the interplanetary vehicles. Exactly. Uh, I, like you said, Earth's been used a few times. Uh, Jupiter's a very popular one, but that's all for speeding up, not slowing down. Right, right. And in this case, that's exactly what we're doing. We're we're kind of slowing the spacecraft down a little bit because, th as you said, this is this is a, a, a fairly fast spacecraft, and I believe this is the probably the fastest object that we've that humanity's ever lofted. And I believe that it, it takes the uh, the mantle away from the New Horizons spacecraft. If you recall, with New Horizons when it first launched back in two thousand six. Uh, within a few hours of launch, uh, it was already beyond the moon. This thing is, is really, really going. So in order to slow it down to make sure that they can get the readings they need to get, they're going to have to uh, go ahead and, and use use Venus to, to slow it down a little bit. Why don't we go ahead and let uh, uh, Adam Zabo give some final words about, um, about what this kind of means to him and uh, uh, what this mission should be, uh, be all about. That we, if it you didn't detect, we are really, really excited. Uh, eight years of, well, at least eight years, uh, it, uh, unless you say about 60 years from the get-go when the original idea uh, was proposed for Solar Probe, but eight years of really hard work. I mean, this is, this is the moment when uh, all the engineers and scientists that, uh, who worked on this uh, mission say that, well, you know, like, oh, it's done. You know, it really is done. You know, all that work that when we question it, can it be done? Is it possible? It's on the launch pad, on the top of a rocket. And tonight, it's hopefully will be going toward the sun. And this is what we worked for for so many years. This is the payoff uh, for all of us. Uh, that, and of course, when we start to get the data. So come back in December, that's when we will get the 
first set of the data points, uh, it will be all new. So no matter what we measure, it will be new. Yeah. You're probably going to get sick of hearing this question, but um, yeah. at T0, what are you going to be your thoughts? Keep going, going, going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> So you know again, he he's his role again is the 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 principal scientist in the mission. So he's he's really going to have his hands full in the coming coming months and 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 years years ahead. Because again, this is a this is if I recall, Sawyer, this is a, a the prime mission is a seven year mission. Correct. And keep in mind, every time it's going to be getting a little closer and closer. By its first major pass, it will already be closer than any other spacecraft to the sun until eventually gets within that 4 million miles. And after that, it all depends on how much fuel it still has left for its thrusters. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I'm wondering, too, if, uh, you know, there's depending on how well and how healthy the spacecraft is, if we are going to see a secondary mission uh, for this thing. Exactly. Well, as I had pointed out earlier, Sawyer, in every story that we've seemed to have covered, any, any big story that we have seemed to have covered, uh, there's somehow or other, there's always a Jersey angle to it. This story is no different. Apparently, there is an experiment that is flying on here. Um, it is called the Integrated Science Investigation of the Sun, or ESIS. Um, if anybody has seen the literature on, on the Parker Solar Probe, you'll see the, uh, the ESIS experiment represented with a, uh, a symbol of the sun in between the, the, the two ISIS. And that w that's basically done to represent the, uh, the goddess ESIS that uh, is uh, uh, linked up with, with the sun. It uses really two instruments. Uh, one is basically a combined scientific inve investigation to measure particles uh, across a, a wide ran range of energies. But I'm not going to go ahead and explain that to you. I'm going to go ahead and turn this over to the uh, principal investigator on this, who's, who's actually a rather extraordinary individual in and of itself, but because he's... He's got something like 22,000 citations to his credit in, in various papers. Uh, he himself has written almost over, you know, 550, 560 scientific papers. He's been the prince. He's been the principal investigator on on an instrument, on several instruments, on on Ulysses, on on Juno, and a few other uh, spacecraft. Uh, and he's an extraordinary individual. Uh, now, Dr. David McComas, and I believe Sawyer, he may have visited our microphones here before for the uh, the the, uh, the Juno uh, flight, and he was also describing some of the things that he was involved with then. Back then, he was with the uh, the Southwest Research Institute, I believe. Now he is with Princeton University here in New Jersey and uh, I had the, the the distinct honor to go ahead and spend some time with him and and do a, a little bit of a Q&A with him he was he was very very uh, gracious with his time his staff were very very gracious in allowing me to go ahead and, and talk with him in this event and I go ahead I wanted to go ahead and reach out to thank uh, everybody that was associated with uh, with Princeton University and in, in getting this to work but why don't I go ahead and let him explain what the ESIS experiment is really, really all about? So um, the ESIS instrument measures energetic particles. And we actually have two instruments as part of this instrument suite, lower energy particles and higher energy particles. But collectively, there are a lot of energetic particles that are produced by the sun, by different phenomena. Um, solar energetic particles come from flares 
when flares go off at the sun, they also come from very fast-moving solar wind that forms shocks in front of this fast-moving wind, and the shocks propagate through the ionized gas we call plasma, the solar wind. Those shocks can accelerate particles. And so um, we've been studying it, <clears throat> excuse me, we've been studying energetic particles for a long time in space, basically 60 years in space. In fact, sort of the first measurements in space, Van Allen belts, those were energetic particles. So we've been studying them for a long time. We've been studying solar energetic particles for a long time. But at the distance of the Earth from the Sun, or even if you get in as close as Venus or Mercury, you can't really tell what's caused the acceleration because you can't separate that from how they've been transported outward from closer in, in the corona. It's only by flying through those regions that we'll actually be able to untangle what the acceleration processes are, how they really work, and then how the transport occurs beyond that. You kind of get the idea here by you know measuring these electrons, protons, ions. Uh, this particular experiment is going to understand you know, really, really the particle life cycle, where they come from, how they become accelerated, how they move out from the sun through interplanetary space. And again, Sawyer, this is kind of critical uh, to understanding you know, how things are, uh, how the sun impacts not only you know us here on Earth, but also how it's going to impact our communications uh, spacecraft flying um, in orbit, and also how it may impact uh, astronauts that are flying uh, in, in Earth orbit, or how an orbiting platform like the International Space Station could actually be impacted. Um, I asked him, too, why, you know, people, ordinary people, though, really, really should pay attention to, uh, to this particular experiment and to this particular mission. And he really, really had an intriguing answer to that. So I give several different answers. I mean, first of all, there is science for science sake. You know, we, we're, as human beings, we want to understand the universe that we live in. And it's important for us to understand uh, how the sun works and how our place in the galaxy really, you know, what it is, how it really works. So there is science for science sake. Um, beyond that, these energetic particles are, and the solar wind are very important because they actually produce space weather around the Earth. Uh, that space weather affects the technological systems that we fly in space. Uh, when you use your GPS or you have relay satellites in space or uh, telecommunication, all of those things are actually in a weather environment, a space weather environment that's very akin to our Earth weather environment. And when we have very large number, for example, of solar energetic particles coming into the magnetosphere, those can actually hurt satellites in space and affect our, our technical capabilities. So there are some practical applications also. And the third answer I'd give you is um, that these fundamental physical processes like particle acceleration don't just occur at our own sun in our own solar system, but occur around other stars and around uh, stars when they explode and need to form novae and supernovae and things like that, have these big shocks and get particle acceleration to very, very high energies. And we're not able to study those sorts of environments directly because we can't go to those places. But by understanding it in the place we can directly sample at our own star, at the sun, we'll much better understand those other places where, where much higher energy particle energization can occur. So, yeah, there, there is, is the deal science for science's sake, you know, because, again, one of uh, the things that, uh, if you recall, uh, Mark Ratterman, uh, who I kind of wish was with us tonight, uh, he, he basically was, was the one who, 
who loved to quote um, the uh, principal investigator of the uh, of AMS, um, Dr. Samuel Ting. He was like saying, well, you go ahead, you, you set out to find X, and guess what? You find Y and Z instead, and you still go ahead and, and push the, the human condition forward. But also there's a practical side of this, and I think Dr. McConnell's made a very, very good case um, as far as uh, why individuals should go ahead and, and pay attention to this. Now, he also, sorry, this is a, a thing that we discussed earlier in the program. Um, I wanted to find out, because he had been involved with uh, several other um, solar missions as well, and I asked him, too, what separates this particular mission from something like, say, Ulysses, or even SDO, or, or anything like that, and he had a very, very intriguing uh, reply to that. Different missions have different places in our figuring out how things work in space. Ulysses was great because it was the only mission even to date, that's gone significantly out of the ecliptic plane, the plane of the planets, mm -hmm. and went over the poles of the sun. And so for the first time, it allowed us to measure the three-dimensional structure of the solar wind and understand the three-dimensional heliosphere. Um, but that didn't let us understand how the corona worked, how the solar wind was accelerated, where these energetic particles, and where and how these energetic particles were accelerated to such high energy. Um, those are all phenomena that you have to go in close for. And so whereas Ulysses gave us the three-dimensional view of the solar wind out at 1 to 5 AU, AU is the distance between the Earth and the Sun, this is going to give us the, the first real measurements in close in the corona where we'll be able to determine sort of the underlying physical processes that do this acceleration and energization. So again, I think he makes a very good comparison between uh, the Parker Solar Probe and his previous experiences with uh, with with say Ulysses and so on, because again he's he's uh, he's had a lot of instrumentation you know, experience, and he's he's currently the PI on on several other uh, solar missions as well. So uh, again, I think he, he brought a very good uh, way to, to to look at things and so on. One of the things I was fascinated about, and this is kind of exploring a little bit of the human side of human of uh, of, of space exploration, and uh, some some really good human stories of individuals going ahead and basically taking something, a disadvantage that they have been granted uh, through no fault of their own and taking that disadvantage and using it and beating it over the head and, and using it to their advantage. And um, I, during my, my, my homework um, about uh, Dr. McComas, I, I discovered that he, he suffers from a learning disability. He suffers from dyslexia. And uh, I, that part of it kind of intrigued me a little bit because I know of individuals now today that are kind of struggling with, um, with their own challenge of, of you know, not reading correctly and so on. And um, I know parents that I would, and in, my, in my day job that uh, have children that are also kind of dealing with this. Some of these instructors are not exactly, uh, shall we say, um, optimistic about these these kids' futures. 
And uh, that just isn't the case. I mean, there have been several other instances where um, people have taken that learning disability and beat it over the head, uh, the late Pete Crownrad, for instance. But here I, I have another story of, of another gentleman who um, has taken this and literally beat it over the head and used it to his advantage, actually. He was connected with a, uh, uh, a program, uh, I believe, that, that basically shows that you can use this to this, quote, learning disability, close quote, if you want to call it that, um, to an advantage. And um, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and let him talk about that, his own challenges, and also uh, the, uh, the organization that he was once uh, a board member with. And uh, I guess because he's just been too darn busy, had to go ahead and, and step that aside. But I, I get the feeling, too, that it, uh, um, it it was something, it's still something that is very near and dear to his heart because he, he deals with this challenge every day and he's he admitted he deals with it. So, I mean, dyslexia is surprisingly common. It's something like 10% of the population. So it's really, really common. Um, and when I was growing up, it, I'm old enough that it wasn't really understood you know, very well at all, and people who couldn't read at grade level were, and as I was often called, uh, were thought to be slow, as if, you know, this was some sort of, you can't be smart if you're not keeping up in reading. But in reality, uh, there are very smart people who didn't keep up in reading. Uh, I'm still a terrible reader to this day. I still can't spell to this day. I, you know, these are skills that, you know, I'm just not, not any good at. Um, what we've learned over the years about dyslexia is it's actually, to a large extent, brain structure related. People who are dyslexics tend to have somewhat different brain structure than people who aren't dyslexic, and there may actually be advantages of that. Very often people who are, you know, sort of divergent thinkers and able to put together ideas from a lot of different realms and assemble those um, often are found in the dyslexic, uh, dyslexic population. And so um, Dyslexic Advantage took that name because there are actually some advantages that go along with some of the disadvantages um, because of how the brain works and because they're able to do certain certain things uh, better than the average pop population. What advantages would it have? Well, I think I think for example, the advantage the advantages that my brain has given me is I'm very good at thinking in three dimensional space. You know, I can visualize things extremely well. Um, I can pull together really divergent ideas and facts um, in ways that a lot of other people can't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that it's a trade space between sort of things you're better at and things you're less good at, and I think the way your brain is made does all that. There, there's, it's just not true that, that reading ability is, is predictive for abilities in other very, very important areas. Right. So, you know, it's just kind of a mistake that we've made because we try to teach everybody through reading. But this is really super recent. I mean, people didn't read to learn most of the population until a few hundred years ago, right? Right. right. People learned in other ways. And, and so, you know, now we sort of, we've gone through this phase where, where, you know, ability to read is sort of equated, directly equated with, you know, being smart. And that's just, it's just not true. So again, this is, this is an individual who's literally taking this this kind of thing and and you know really really using it to his own own benefit and it's just another story out there of of, of somebody taking a, a little bit of a challenge and and really really 
using it to to increase their abilities and increase what they can contribute. And uh, <laughs> to say that this gentleman has not uh, contributed to uh, the uh, the body of scientific knowledge is uh, is just would be dead wrong. He's an extraordinary uh, person, and I was just honored to even have the the. 15 minutes I had with him. Um, I finally asked him what his thoughts would be at T0. He had some some really cool uh, cool insights into that. I'm going to be hoping that the rocket burns <laughs> true and steady and, and that all of the very complicated things that have to happen as you burn out different parts of the rocket and they drop away and the fairing opens. And I mean, there's a lot of really complicated technical stuff that has to work perfectly perfectly one after another after another. It's actually about 43 minutes after launch before the spacecraft is let go and is on its trajectory and in some sense safe, basically, you know, safely on its travels in space. So, so, so we'll be holding, many of us, uh, you know, who know the technical details of those 43 minutes will be holding our breath for a really long time. So yeah, you can actually hear the excitement in his voice about uh, about this mission and why it's important and why people should pay attention to it. It's uh, uh, and it's it's still an intriguing story in my eyes, and and I, I still can't wait to 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 continue to tell the story of this mission as it goes forward. Uh, we'll be watching it very very closely. Oh, that we will absolutely, and. Uh... We won't be the only ones. There's all those scientists that we talked to, and uh, those were all interviews we did before launch. We also got to talk to some of the scientists after launch. You heard a little bit in part one from Dr. Z, who uh, you don't even need to know his full name. He's that cool. They just goes by Dr. <laughs> Z. <laughs> but we also got to talk with uh, a woman by the name of Nikki Fox, who actually just recently was promoted to the head of heliophysics essentially at nasa's where she's going to be starting her job at the goddard space flight center but she every day had and this is the coolest thing a dress that got closer and closer to the sun yeah it started off wide and kept getting closer and closer as we got closer to launch day you could tell she was just so psyched and, and so thrilled to just be there after after so long and in, in working on this mission and and so on in fact um there was a, a quite a crowd around her uh, at the press site. She she first off, she's one of these people that are, that are real that's really charismatic. She's really you know just talking with her is, uh, I mean the excitement in her is is just totally infectious. So if if you want to talk to her about this mission, she will literally 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 just go off just like 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 Doctor Green will. Um, she's really, really uh, excited about, about this whole prospect here. And uh, we had a, a chance to talk with her after the launch. I asked her what her reaction was to, to the launch and what uh, Dr. Jean Parker, who the Parker Solar Probe is named after, uh, she, he, was, uh, stand, he was sitting uh, directly uh, uh, you know, in, in front of her. Because again, this is the the mission. I should say is named after Dr. Parker. Uh, this is the first time that NASA has has named a uh, a, a spacecraft after someone that is still still with us, and uh, it, it it was it was just an honor too because uh, Dr. Parker was the first one that uh, that isolated uh, 
what the solar wind really, really was and uh, wrote a large dissertation about it, and nobody really thought it was correct. In fact, he uh, he was, at first, in 1958, when he first first put it out there and first published it, it was, uh, it was as absolutely soundly ridiculed. Uh, the following year, it discovered, hey, he's right. So he was the one who who figured out that the solar wind, not only does the solar wind exist, it moves at supersonic speeds. Um, but uh, he he was um, he was with uh, with uh, Nikki Fox here, and we'll let uh, Nikki go ahead and talk about this. Uh, Dr. Parker was um, amazing. Uh, he just um, he basically sat there with his mouth open, looking at the sky, and uh, somebody you know somebody asked him how he felt, and he didn't hear the question, so I bent down and said, you know, Gene, how do you feel? And he just looks at me and he goes, We did it! Hooray! <laughs> Which was very very sweet, and um, he did he did some interviews straight on afterwards and uh, he's 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 ready for some sleep now I think um, although he actually told me he was too when I said to him are you ready to sleep he said I think I'm already asleep so um, he's, he's going for a well-earned rest um, but uh, the whole family was there with him um, it was an amazing thing we were all hooting and hollering and um, as I say for the first time in months I was actually speechless so um, somebody said to me can you say how you're feeling and I was like no I can't I'm sorry <laughs> it's too emotional so it's an incredible so yeah, she was. You, you could tell in her voice and that that not only was she excited to finally get this bird, you know, free of the nest, she was also very very excited to uh, to be standing behind uh, its namesake and uh, and delivered to what his reaction was to all of this. And, and Dr. Parker is about ninety two years old and had never seen a launch ever in person it was it was kind of magical i guess for for everybody to have him uh present at at, at this particular uh mission especially his namesake um she gave further insights too as in what the next steps will be going forward from uh from launch day too so i asked her about uh what those next steps might be and uh, she was gracious enough to uh, to to let me know. Uh, so for the team, um, everybody here in Florida is going to be packing up all of our equipment and uh, shipping it back up the, to uh, the applied physics lab. Um, for the mission ops team, of course, their work has really just started. Um, I mean, they've, they've been obviously doing all their simulations and doing everything, but um, I think a lot of people felt like they were rushing to the finish line today, and the mission ops team felt like they were rushing to the starting line. So they are now really, um, you know, all the, all the focus is on them. They are getting the spacecraft ready to meet the Venus for the first time and get all the instruments on. So it's a busy time, eight weeks to Venus and then six weeks to the Corona. So uh, it's, uh, it's going to be exciting. Yeah, you can tell, too, that there's a lot of work to do. The folks over at the uh, Kennedy Space Center will be packing up their gear and, and, and moving on. But the, uh, the mission operations team, <laughs> they are just getting started. And it is going to be a very long mission going ahead. But... Uh, uh, it will be in a very, very exciting seven years as well. Um, she also told us about what the status of the vehicle was that she knew um, at that period of time, which Sawyer, if I recall, was just not even, was maybe about an hour or two um, uh, right after launch. It was just, just, just when we got the signal back and 
Um, yeah, it was about 15 minutes after we got the signal back, so it was a little more than an hour after launch. Right. I mean, we were, because I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to put everything in, together in my head right now, but it was about an hour after after we we uh, we had the launch, uh, the successful launch, and we got, uh, we, we knew for sure that we had a healthy bird. So uh, she described what, uh, how healthy we, we, the bird really, really was. So um, let's go ahead and, and throw that out there. Uh, Spacecraft is doing great. Uh, we are power positive. She is talking to us. Uh, the solar array cooling system is active. So I think we've just got one more uh, milestone when, when we know that the attitude is all. Uh, we're just waiting for a number and then we're, we're all good and I will probably start breathing again. So all in all we had a very healthy vehicle coming out of uh coming out of that launch it is still being monitored they're still you know getting things together even as we speak right now uh and but uh so far so good Sawyer we've got a we've got a a, a very very healthy vehicle and a very very healthy uh bird up there so fingers continued to be crossed here but she wasn't the only one we talked to over at um over at the press site as uh, as we were getting our, our data together post-launch, right, Sawyer? Yeah, that's right. And uh, going back to one of my favorite names, Dr. Z, <laughs> he was also there uh, chatting with us. And they did things a little differently this time. Instead of everyone sitting down at the auditorium where they do the press conferences on air, there was no on-air press conference. It was, if you find someone, they're yours. First come, first serve. And a bunch of us gather around Dr. Fox and then Dr. Z as well and uh they were a lot of fun to talk to and I was I was basically right behind the model of the sun with all these you know magnetic loops coming out of it as we understand it now as he's talking about what this will help us understand and that was really cool. Yeah, we were we were kind of like like stand, I think all three of us were we were you know you me and uh, Pranvera we were like kind of all lined up and just waiting to to get a, a question in there. And, uh, and Sawyer, you had a really cool uh, question as far as the commissioning phase and, and how long that was going to take and, and what, what the really, really a process was. And uh, Dr. Z was all too happy to go ahead and uh, ac be accommodating and, and, uh, and, and give us his answer and his insights into that. Then let's listen to it. The health of the spacecraft we have right now. We have data from the spacecraft. We have, we're power positive. And so, so the team right now is looking at health parameters. They're already at work. And kind of all the systems, guidance, navigation, the power system, the thermal, all these things are equilibrating. And so basically they have models that they're comparing with. They're doing that right now. We're going to wait a little bit and then turn the sensors on. Each instrument, there's a sequence uh, that they're using. And each one of those instruments knows exactly where they're going first. And they need to be done with all of them well ahead of the Venus flyby in eight weeks. Right? So, so, so basically, so what, they're, what they're doing right now, it's going to be a rush for, the, for this. Uh, you know, and, and so basically, it's weeks. And, and, and so, so some of the stuff, you know, um, you have to, some of the stuff, you know, what happens, it will take until you really understand your instrument to the level of detail that you want will take a year or so. It's just you have to really understand everything about your instrument. And, and, and you, the only way you do that is, is digging in. And you know, then you figure out subtleties. Of course, you understand how it works to zero order, but that's not good enough to do breakthroughs. And so it, 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 that, that takes a longer time. So yeah, I mean, there, there's still a lot that needs to happen. There's still a lot that needs to, to, to go on here. 
we've got a few weeks uh, to go out there. I believe the, the grand total is about 14 weeks between now as we record this in August and uh, uh, the uh, first solar encounter. So there is there is a load of time between uh, between now and then to go ahead and make sure that uh, the spacecraft is behaving uh, quite nicely and so far so good. Um, one of the other things that uh, I, w I was really, really kind of eager to find out is during, for instance, the, the Venus flyby, uh, what instruments were going to be turned on? In fact, uh, our colleague, well, our temporary colleague anyway, uh, Pranvera Hyseni, who, is, who we kind of uh, brought on board to help us out with some of the camera work, uh, had also a similar question. She kind of set it up, set it up for me and... Uh, uh, one of the things I wanted to find out is this kind of like a dress rehearsal, if you will, for for solar operations as we as we fly by Venus. Let's go ahead and, and get Dr. Z's uh, answer in on that. So, so the instruments that we most want to study Venus are the magnetic field, the electric field instruments, as well as the plasma and energetic particle instruments. So in other words, precisely the instruments that are out there to study the the sun. So it's actually the right instruments and, and, and the cup out there, the brave cup, is actually really helpful because it's it's out there so the, the the temperature of those gases are a lot cooler than the one by the sun. So actually it helps to have that exposed instrument. For Venus science it's gonna be just as important or even more important than the other instruments. Sounds like it'll be almost like a dress rehearsal for uh, Exactly exactly right. So it's a it's the first flyby uh, kind of of any type, you know, so you can really practice the, so besides the science you also exercise the team You're all coming together, you know, it's kind of it's, it's almost like an orchestra, right? Everybody has to play their instrument and have to bring the data together and you'll know how it works uh, After Venus and then you're ready of course getting ready for the real You know the real issue which is the first periapsis passed and then you, you start becoming a team, you know, melding, it's good. The human dimension really matters. Yes. You know, kind of becoming a team is not something you write in a document. It's learning how to trust each other and, and kind of learn, kind of calibrate each other's instruments. You know, whatever the electron guy says that sees the, the, the you know, the, the, the person who's running the wave instrument, they relate to each other. They need to start pulling the data together. That's what it means to be a team. So yes, you can understand too, it's not just the instruments to make sure that, that everything is working there. You want to also make sure that the people are reading themselves right, that they understand that they're clicking, that they're all working together. And it's not just about the, the instruments, it's not just about the, the hardware, it's about the human factor here too. Um, because it's going to take people, you know, one, one of the things pe folks just don't understand is that it takes people to go ahead and make all of this work. Um, the technology is amazing, but if the people are not working together, if the people aren't clicking together, you know, something, something bad's going to happen. And you want to make sure that, that the team is, is understanding and reading each other correctly. And, and that was one of the things that uh, Dr. Z hammered home. Um, one of the other, other questions um, was about his role in the mission and what his thoughts were as being even a part of this whole whole thing. And Dr. Sabukin struck me as an individual um, with himself a lot of humility and uh, said, hey, I'm, I'm well, I'm not going to spoil it for you. So first of all, it's absolutely clear that the credit belongs to the team who did the work. I feel really humbled to be part of it. 
I'm of course my job is to be the up and out person. I advocate for it uh, I, with the Congress, with the White House, with the community at large, right? But but in this case, I actually know a lot about it because I used to do this work, right? But but I, ultimately, you know, I, I just feel extremely grateful for the team. It's it's the team that deserves the credit all the all the way down to the you know technician to the person who really did these subtle engineering feats that make this mission a success and you know so everything matters when you build a mission like that and so for me you that comes when you see a success like that launch right that's what i think of is that team like everybody had to do their part you know so I know when the rocket took off, 12 bolts had to be cut within a few milliseconds. For that to happen, a number of technicians, a number of engineers, just that alone, and that's only one, the first 10, milli, the first 10 20 milliseconds of that launch. You, you talk yourself through the whole story. You just realize how, how amazing team that is. Uh, Dr. Zabrukin himself is a, is a kind of a modest individual. He's saying, hey, I just do my part of this. Um, it's actually the, the, the team that is actually going ahead and, and you know, the, the folks that are on console and doing all this hard work, they're the ones that really, really deserve the applause. You know, I just make sure that they, you know, the road is paid for them and, and, and they can go ahead and, and do what they need to do. Um, you know, and I, I, his, his deal is just to keep folks off their backs so they can work. And, uh, and I, I believe he's, he's probably the best, best, uh, one to go ahead and make sure that all of that happens. And, uh, so, so far, so good. So, um, again, we, Sawyer, that, that doesn't even scratch the surface. There's still a lot more we can go ahead and talk about here, but I see the, the, the time clock is running out on us here. Um, I there's one more interview, Sawyer, that, that we're going to do, and it's actually an event that NASA put on um, on that, thir that first Thursday, but it was never televised. So why don't you take it from there, Sawyer, and we'll, we'll go ahead and set that up and, uh, and tell our folks about it. That's right. We were told that uh, Dr. Parker himself was not going to be available for any interviews. He was going to be there in a VVIP location with no media access. No one's going to get to talk to him, which we were okay with. We understand he's 91 years old. This is a big deal. It's his first launch. So we get into the press conference room, which on one side of the room is the NASA social team. The other side is us. They inflate these beach balls that look like the sun. There's a little <laughs> solar probe on them. We're hitting them around. We're having a good time. They get us pumped up. And then they go, oh, by the way, you may want to stay for after this first hour because we will have a very special guest. Dr. Eugene Parker himself will be here, and he will be doing a 30-minute Q&A. And we just went, What? And we may or may not have lost our minds a little bit and screamed like little schoolgirls at the <laughs> excitement of it. And it was amazing because he went beyond those 30 minutes even. He went a little longer, and uh, it was never aired on NASA television in it live. It was replayed in bits and pieces later, but never run in its entirety. And ladies and gentlemen, the third part of our very special episode will be that conversation in its entirety. And it is 40 minutes of amazingness and laughter and insight into a brilliant mind. And you'll understand very quickly why they named this mission after him. Indeed, Sawyer. I mean, the, the man's mind, in my opinion, it was, is 
at 92 years old is way sharper than mine ever will. <laughs> okay. I'm serious. Than any of us ever will. Uh, absolutely. I am serious. Uh, after that, 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 after that, the, the, you know, 30 plus minutes that, that you and I and, and the rest of that room was able to go ahead and, and sit through and just, you know, listen to this man in awe. I mean, he was, <laughs> I mean, wow. Some of the insights he was able to provide, some of the uh, other, other, other questions that were asked of him, uh, you know, how, you know, overcoming adversity and, and a few other things. I mean, he took us to school and gave us not only a lot of scientific knowledge, but also the wisdom of 92 years. And after this episode drops, uh, as they say in, in, in podcasting land, um, we can't wait to bring that particular piece of this whole coverage to you. We've saved the best for last hang in there with us it is going to be probably the one of the the most stunning half hours we've ever presented absolutely and uh we hope you'll stay for that part three but in the meantime gene any final thoughts on the parker solar probe successful launch again sawyer the first time i heard about this was was a few years ago um i was introduced to this by uh, a mutual friend of ours dr Catherine qualthrow on her blog uh, q space and i was intrigued by the whole thing back then uh and having the honor first off to be at that launch that night or should I say that early morning, um, I never take getting to the Kennedy Space Center for granted, especially for a momentous scientific uh, endeavor like like we we just witnessed you and I uh, to see that that bird off and uh, and to wish it well. And also the key thing is to wish the scientists well in this endeavor um, as uh, one former, astronaut and former uh, NASA associate administrator was fond of saying all exploration is human exploration and we have we are just you know getting scratching the surface of our nearest star the sun in, in order to understand it better and I am so looking forward to to the uh, to the data and to the uh, to the information that that this mission is going to yield because Gang, this is going to help us tremendously not only understand the sun's impact on the solar system as a whole, but understand the impact on us. We are a technological society. We have become dependent on, on technology. And like it or not, the sun's effects impact that technology. So in order to understand how we can make our technology impervious to this, we need to go ahead and understand our nearest star a lot better. And Parker Solar Probe is going to be the key to doing just that. Very well said. And again, this may have been a slightly underplayed mission by some of the people involved, but it is an amazing mission. It deserves so much more recognition than it already had. And it's something that we're going to be tracking for the next seven years. And uh, hopefully we'll still be around by then for uh, season six. 
fifteen by then. <laughs> I, I I'm looking forward to it, Sawyer. I I fully intend to be be uh, standing in front of this microphone as for as long as uh, long as uh, humanly possible, bringing all this to you. They'll, I mean. You know, they'd have to slam me in the box to tear me away from it, to be honest. <laughs> there you go, exactly. And uh, I'd like to thank all of you for joining us on this journey, and we hope you'll stick with us for the amazing part with that uh, discussion with Dr. Eugene Parker. But until next time, thank you for joining us, and as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are, and go Parker Solar Probe. 